Hello everyone, it's been a few years. My name's Barry Wilkinson from SW Brokerage, uh, the Managing Director. Welcome to the Australian Financial Focus podcast. Today I'm very much blessed to be sharing the room with three experts. One of them is Sean Cannon from SW Brokerage as well. Welcome, Sean. Yep, cheers, Barry. Good to be here, mate. The other one is Sebastian Mazza, the Italian stallion, uh, the Sicilian from Brisbane West, I should say, and Brisbane North and Brisbane East. Sebastian Mazza, welcome from Wealth Depot. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Barry. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I know that. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. And the Greek god from South Brisbane West, Steve Constantino from Super for Life. Welcome, Steve. How are you? Good, thanks, Barry. Hello to Sean and Sebastian. Good to be back. Now, today I want to talk about something that's very popular and it's gaining a lot more momentum than a lot of people are actually aware of. It's about SMSF. Now, we've been in the industry, all of us collectively, probably over nearly 100 years. So there's a lot of experience here. I want to be able to talk to people today to tell them a little bit more about SMSF and how tangible it can be for some people mm-hmm. and something that they need to look to strive towards. So I might kick off, if that's okay, with uh, yourself, Sebastian and Steve, and then we'll move into the lending part in terms of how it works from a lender's perspective. And that's Sean Canham, who's the the finance expert. So mate, Sebastian, can I just, why would someone look at an SMSF? I think initially it's always about wanting to to have just a better understanding of their of someone's superannuation retirement savings and how they can use those funds to outperform, provide better options, control their retirement savings. So it always comes down to the why. We had these conversations with clients on a day-to-day basis and it always comes down to the suitability and whether it's appropriate because managing your own super does come with a fair bit of compliance obligations and responsibilities. So we need to get into the headspace of our clients, understand the why. And once we do understand that why, then there's no reason why more Australians shouldn't be looking at this as a viable option in terms of managing their super. Is there tend to be an age bracket, Sebastian, that you would suggest people to maybe put on the horizon? Of interest, actually, there's been a lot of uptake from the 20 to 40 age bracket. Mm. Self-managed super funds used to be the space of older Australians, you know, yep. Australians that are potentially, you know, in pre-retirement phase or self-employed or high net worth and, and income earners. But we have seen a bit more of an interest in the 20 to 40 age bracket, which is quite interesting, actually, yeah. And, mate, just quickly, how long have you been a financial planner for? So financial planning, 12 years. Yeah. Chartered accountant, too many years to count. Self-employed, yeah, again, yeah, so... Self-management funds for me have been a big part of my own personal financial journey. Mm-hmm. Very keen to continue to explore those opportunities for our clients. Okay, mate, thanks very much. Steve, I might uh, come across to yourself. So how long have you been in the financial planning game? Mate, another couple of years, I'll push on to three decades in the business and certainly seen a lot of changes and just on SMSF, it really generated a lot of momentum throughout the years. Had a little bit of a spell a few years ago where, for the first time ever, there was more funds uh, getting wound up than established, but that didn't last long, and then it's back on again. People really seeing the need because of the gap. I mean, we asked Sebastian before about the why, and as he said, uh, circumstances, you know, what are the people's circumstances? And we find a lot of clients really, when they analyse what they're going to require at retirement to be able to retire, they're going to be short. Mm of where they need to be and really SMSF is probably the only way to bridge that gap. 
how many super funds do we have in Australia, Sebastian or Steve? Do you know roughly? I, I read Self somewhere about funds. a mil, a million super funds. There's close to self-managed. Yeah, I think there's close to a million plus members. And you've got what roughly? That's correct. Yeah, they yeah. actually need to remind me. There's 1.1 yeah. million members, members and about 600 yeah. odd thousand funds. Yeah, yeah. most funds have two yeah. members. Most, you know. Yeah. Husband, wife, or partner type of arrangement, but there are many single. It's all inclusive here, mate. All inclusive, but there are many single member funds. A single person can have their own super fund, but they recently introduced that you can have up to six members. So become now an even more family orientated yep. view of, about managing your retirement savings. We'll get down to the nitty gritty because there was a couple of things that you both spoke upon there in terms of retirement and not having enough. And that is something that I probably want to talk about because I know a lot of listeners out there would be really keen to know more about. But now that we've kind of broken down why in SMSF, probably the next part for yourself, Sebastian and Steve, if you could probably talk about the structure of it. What is it that's needed from a trust structure when you set something like this up? And really breaking that down, Steve. Well, mate, first of all, you obviously need motivation for people to want to do it and then understand the legalities around it because there's a little bit of obligation as far as running your own fund. We're, we're the only country in the world that allows people to manage their own retirement savings the way we do it, which can be good and it can also be not ideal if they either don't know what they're doing or they have a poor strategy. So first things first, once they've decided that they uh, want to do it and it's going to benefit their circumstances – and the only really way to, to know that is to, is to sit down in front of a professional like you know myself or Sebastian first so we can make that analysis and get, take them through all the obligations. But yeah, you're right, Sebastian just alluded to, you can have up to six members now, but they all need to be engaged. You can't just sort of become a member and then let someone else sort of handle it. So it needs to be equally distributed? Well, well, well you can sort of let someone sort of, uh, you quite often you'll find if you've got four members, usually one of them is a bit more, will take a key role, if you like. But um, importantly, the obligation, the legal obligation, and there is some, can be some significant penalties if you get it wrong. So you do need the guidance of a professional planner and an accountant who's going to handle things on the administration side financially. And then, of course, there's no point setting one up either if your objective is not to, to you know to leverage your retirement savings through property and then of course obviously you guys come in from from SW brokerage as far as providing the capital to enact the yeah. strategy so but from say from so if we've established why an SMSF your next protocol there would be the structure i.e. the structure needs to be bear trust if you're looking at a borrowing arrangement what we call a limited recourse borrowing arrangement yep. which you know, requires the special holding trust to be set up that holds the title of the property from the get-go, from contract date, whilst there's a borrowing arrangement in place. So that these special structures need to be all part of the discussion and understood. It doesn't really change how things run day in, day out in your fund, So just, but there's special structures from a compliance point of view that need to be set up. So if you were borrowing money, you wouldn't have to have the same structure if you were just setting up the fund itself without having any um, yeah, that's objective. Right. Yeah. So if you, if you weren't looking to use borrowing to amplify the um, investment strategy, like Steve mentioned, then you would just have a straightforward self-managed super fund, which is, is a trust in nature, but has a lot more rules, a lot more specific compliance obligations. And then if you wanted to look at setting that up through a financial planner, roughly in terms of cost-wise, how much cost-wise oh. would someone have to really earmark for something like that? So you need to work out, yeah, which, like what, Overall structure is going to best serve the purpose and the end game, I guess. So you can choose between a corporate trustee and individual trustees. But like Steve mentioned, you know, individual trustees all have to be 
trustees. So mm-hmm. your trustees have to be, or members, I should say, have to be trustees of, of the fund. So a corporate trustee, you know, adds a little bit extra cost because not just from the outset, but ongoing with ASIC annual return compliance as well. Look, setup can be between potentially including advice, et cetera, et cetera. You're looking an investment of around seven to ten thousand dollars. So okay. someone sits with you boys, wants to talk to you about the SMSF. Once they decide to, obviously, you give your prognosis and what's not. You're looking at roughly say seven to ten if they decide to go ahead with that. Is that right? Yeah, pretty okay. much. And you, you mentioned there, Steve, the limited recourse borrowing. What is that? If you could probably elaborate on that one there for the listeners. Steve-O? Yeah, mate, that is required, obviously, as Sebastian said before. If the fund has enough cash to make a property purchase, they won't need the limited recourse borrowing arrangement. But um, if it doesn't and it needs to borrow, well, A, it then needs to be have corporate trustees, i.e. a company as trustee for the members, and it also needs to set up a bear trust. So not the kind of bears you're used to wrestling with, Barry, B-A-E, right? That is a special holding trust that will hold that asset. That's quite funny. Until the finance is extinguished and then the asset then transfers back to being owned by the SMSF and the bear trust effectively is shut down at that point. And interestingly, there is no um, transfer stamp duty at that point for the fund. So that's just an extra mechanism in place because obviously, in the end of the day, the government or the authorities, and ASIC regulates in this country uh, self-managed super funds, they want to make sure that a fund can't end up in a negative equity situation or, or the fund effectively um, going broke, for want of a better word. And just to add on that, this is where the value of getting that advice comes into fruition. We're doing this analysis, we're doing these feasibilities, we're checking the suitability, we're checking cash flow. Because the last thing we would want is for a client to think that this is a great idea for them, and, and hopefully it is, but then in that journey, like, be caught unawares with things like not things that they're not aware of. Exactly. Thanks very much for that, boys. I might bring in Sean Canham here, who's got several years' experience in this arm. Shawnee, from a lending perspective, what are you typically seeing people doing at the moment in terms of borrowing wise, and what's the landscape that, from a lender's perspective, has changed yeah. in the last couple of years? Yeah. Cheers, Baz. Well, look, if we look at the lending in total outside of super as well. The last couple of years is obviously during COVID, there was a big growth and big boom area. So a lot of clients were looking to leverage their existing properties to either upgrade their home or purchase into an investment property and catch that property growth. We also had the construction grants from the government. So there was a lot of construction, a lot of renovations and a lot of new builds. A lot of that has now started to slow down with COVID ending and the fixed rate cliff that we hear about all the time on the media and in the news. So we've seen a lot of changing in consumer appetites and we're doing a lot more refinance. So a lot of reviews of existing facilities um, and helping those clients ensure that they're still in the best possible product and bank for them once that fixed rate expires. Lots of debt consolidation as well as people have racked up some debt, maybe on a car or personal lending or credit cards, things like that. And then if we move into inside self-managed super fund, so this has been a fairly big growth area as well over the last couple of years. A lot of people have realised, okay, I do have this asset over here in my superannuation that I can't touch until I retire or reach preservation age. And as Seb alluded to, a lot more younger people are starting to take a bigger focus on their superannuation because I think that 20 to 40 age bracket, they recognise that by the time they retire, 
there's potentially not going to be an age pension. Mm. So they know they need to have that superannuation growth and work for them for their retirement. So borrowing within their superannuation is a good way to gear and leverage that growth immediately and get into an asset class that they know and trust, which is often residential property. And we've also seen a lot of commercial property inquiries as well. So you mentioned their refinancing. Mm. You saw a lot of the mainstream banks do the SMSF lending years ago. Now they don't want to borrow it. You know, you, yeah. you're kind of dealing with your, not your well, smaller lenders, but mm-hmm. why is that, mate? Like, why have Westpacs of the world, the NABs of the world, CBA world, don't yeah. want the SMSF and they've jacked the interest rate up? Yeah. It's a highly regulated part of the financial industry. As the boys alluded to, lots of trusts involved. You do have to get financial planners involved. Often your accountants and your solicitors get involved as well. And of the major lenders, after the financial review that everybody would have been aware of a few years ago, a lot of the major banks in particular moved away from what is not their core business. So they've gone back to core business, which is banking, helping Australian consumers buy residential property in their own personal names for either their own occupied or investments. Obviously, they've still got their business arms, their business bank and their commercial banking, but they have definitely deleveraged out of the superannuation side of things because they found it was just wasn't taken up as much as they expected. It's also so highly regulated that it is a very expensive I know there was area. one. I know that you're dealing with probably about maybe one on average or two on average per month now for our business. And we last week or two weeks ago saved a guy, I think it might have been nearly eight and a half grand. And it was one of your clients as well hmm. that, yeah, good, you know. Good news story, that one. Yeah, yeah. it is. So the, the amount of people, my, my suggestion, if any of the listeners that are out there, touch base with us. We'll give our details towards the end of the podcast, but jump on board if your rate's really, really high. There's some decent rates out there. But typically, Shawnee, why are the rates higher for SMSF lending? Mm-hmm in the residential part than there is with your investment home, traditional investment home loans, just in someone's personal name? Yeah. Like I mentioned, it's the regulation. It costs the banks a lot more money to fund the SMSF lending. So all banks have to hold a certain amount of capital aside every time they do lend funds out to a consumer or a business or a super fund. So they have to hold a fair amount of cash as a deposit reserve for super fund lending. And it is a slightly more It's not as popular. So if you think about any asset or any product that a company wants to sell, if you sell a lot of them, you don't need to make as much profit per unit. Whereas if you're not selling a lot, you you typically do have to make all all your profit up front. And they often pass on all the fees and charges to the consumer as well. So super fund lending, you often have to pay for application fees, monthly service fees, valuation fees as well. So it is a little bit more expensive too. It's not cheap, but... A lot of that is the upfront stab yeah. costs. Your ongoing maintenance of the facility isn't too expensive in comparison to a investment property loan or owner-occupied loan, but the upfront stabs are a little bit a higher. A little bit higher. Seba and Steve, this one will come back to you. It's just maybe think of something. If you've got a loss within like the borrowings, obviously with the income, with the rent and what's going out in terms of the costs for the loan plus the upkeep of the property, if there's a loss in the entity, that cannot be distributed to any personal person, can it? It needs to stay within the trust. That's correct? Correct. You're sort of talking about a negative gearing type of yep. situation. And that's correct. Those losses, cash flow losses, essentially, yes, yeah, stay, stay within the fund. To be offset against other income of the fund, be it through contributions, you know, deductible contributions or other investment income of the fund. So, 
So negative gearing as such inside a self-managed super fund does work very similar to it does as it does outside of super. Uh, but obviously, we've got to be careful about it being a tax strategy more than an investment and predominantly a wealth creation for retirement strategy. You're recommending anyone that's looking at it from a lending perspective, i.e. investment, buying a commercial property or a residential property, looking at it for growth as opposed to being a vehicle that's going to be a loss. Okay, get it. The question I've got for you, Steve, is that if I can create an SMSF myself, can I invest into the ASX if I wanted to? Or does it have to be in the property? Pretty much. There's a few... um stricter guidelines on some of the asset classes, especially uh, property. But um, yeah, you can invest in equities either on the Australian exchange or any other exchange, even offshore, just like you can outside SMSF. Sorry, so you're saying if I I can go offshore if I wanted to, to invest? Look, coming back to it, every SMSF has to have an investment strategy, yes. which is a formal document signed off by the members that actually states what they're going to invest in and what their strategy is. So if I create an SMSF, is there a timeline that I have to invest? Um, well, it's up to the discretion of the guys who are the members and uh, who are the trustees and driving the funds. I mean, that investment strategy, you could, like typically we're talking today about SMSF predominantly like into property. And so getting back to that original negative gearing top situation, probably not something that me and Sebastian would come across. We, we wouldn't recommend someone really going with a very skinny deposit, tend to go in with a bit bigger deposit, maybe around at least 30%. So, And then with contributions going in, you tend not to get any sort of um, negative equity, uh, negative cash flow situations in an SMSF. So that's not generally a, a big issue. But yeah, getting back to your original point, the, the members can invest in whatever they think they can uh, they can make wow. a, uh, a return. There's a few covenants around things like artwork and things like that where, you know, in the early days, people would invest in artwork and then hang it on their wall at home. So they quickly, well, not quickly, that went on for a little while, but they eventually shut that one down to say that you couldn't get any personal enrichment from the asset. So oh, you could invest in an artwork, but it needed to be stored and locked away in a secure environment. Gold, bullion, other precious metals. If you want to invest in those things, you can. They're not typically something that that I would recommend. I imagine Sebastian wouldn't either, but yeah, it, it is possible. You talked about it just then, the liquidity part. And Shawnee, I want to come back to you in a sec with the mm-hmm. servicing part. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest to the listeners out there that is there a certain balance that you need to convert so your super to an SMSF? To start, is there a magical figure? To start an SMSF to, initially? Yes. And then ongoing? Yes and no. I can't remember when ASIC and even the ATO, I think, came out with some new guidance. It was earlier this year. They've sort of got away from this mandatory minimum initial balance rule. The regulators felt that a minimum balance of 500000 was the, the perfect fit. Yeah. But us as advisors and accountants would always struggle with that as being, why is that test there? Because it comes down always to circumstance. It comes down to what is the strategy? What are the cash flows available? Et cetera, et cetera. We've been able to now move away from that and really focus on the suitability and the more the appropriate test. And as advisors, that's where we have to use our our smarts with the client to make that recommendation. So if, you're, if you're, you mentioned before, you're dealing with people between the age of 20 and 40, younger crew, where you, you know, is there a magical figure that you're seeing within that part? Is it 100,000? Is it 200,000? Is it 300,000? I'm probably going to press you for, for no, a no. figure here. But it comes back down to the investment strategy. 
Yeah. They're wanting to buy a million dollar property. Well, they're going to need, like Steve said, 30% deposit. So then they're going to need 300000 minimum sitting in that fund. If they're only looking to buy a, a one-bedroom unit somewhere on, on the coast, maybe in a growth opportunities, they need less. I know you probably can't say, don't look at this, don't look at that type of asset. Is there something that you could probably suggest to the listeners out there things that they should be looking at as opposed to things that they shouldn't be looking at. You mentioned units there, Sebastian. Your one-bedroom kind of properties, is it your gold billion? Is it your ASX? Is there something that you say or you recommend to your clients to just be cautious of? Steve, I'll start with you. Mate, this is my personal view. I mean, we can only recommend asset classes that we are licensed to. So while we can talk about recommend fund um, set up, uh, recommend and, and do the numbers on property purchase, uh, suitability, investment strategy. We are not property experts per se, so we couldn't actually say go and buy number five Brown Street, for instance. But when it comes to things like cash, fixed interest, bonds, equities, we can specifically, that that is our expertise, and we can specifically say, yeah, you could invest in that portfolio or that. But if there's anything to be wary of, I mean, just my personal view, I know there's other people who support it even within the industry. I'm not a big crypto guy. I haven't really got on that bandwagon yet, but maybe I just don't know enough about it. I'm not putting myself out there to be an expert on that or even to know about it. But that'd be one I'd potentially be looking out for only because personally, I believe probably there will be one or two that might survive longer term. But the crypto you're talking about? Crypto. I don't think we need 10,000 different alternative forms of currency though. So What is that? 26,000, I think? Is it 26? Okay. The last time I read it was exactly. 10. So it probably is 26 yeah. by now. There's doggy coin. I remember there. a year, months ago, started last year, what was that? Nearly 90 or 100? Yeah, yeah. So it's become a bit of a mania, you know, and you can go back. It's just the unknown, isn't it? We learn about the tulip mania back 400 years ago. There's probably manias before that. There's been manias since. And maybe this is – there's definitely another one. This is definitely another one. But out of the ashes of that, there might be some sort of viable coin, whether that's Bitcoin or whatever. But personally – I don't invest in it. I don't encourage anyone to invest in it. I don't even really study it. I'm just mm. an outside observer, and I, I think I can only see pain for most people. So I'd probably steer clear of that, especially with your retirement savings. If you've got a couple grand out of your own money, you want to throw it in, buy a coin, buy a coin. But I, I wouldn't recommend your retirement savings because at the end of the day, you know, you lose your two thousand or five thousand on whatever coin. You know, you got your working life to make that up. But we're talking about retirement savings. You get to the end and you've made some bad investments, well, there's no time to go back and, uh, no. and recoup that money. So, And there's no kind of prehistory with the crypto at the moment, is there? Whereas if you look traditionally with shares over the last, probably the ASX over the last, what, 30 years, probably working on what, on a return of 8%, 8.5? Yeah, yeah about average. So close, you don't really know. Closer to this, 10 um, is it? when you look at the, the US or longer term US average and even the Aussie. But the thing with, if you're comparing equities to crypto, look, equities, you're buying pieces of companies mm. that have assets and a business model generally. Mm. With crypto, there is no there is what nothing. we call intrinsic mm. value. There's no reason why that coin needs to be worth $5,000. Yeah. There is nothing. Yeah. There's no business model. There mm. is no asset. Well, it's not on the ASX, is it? There's not like a, you know. They have launched um, what we call ETFs, exchange-traded yeah, yep. funds. That, Which is very that popular. Look to yeah. parcel up cryptos and, mm. and then they're now listed. So you can buy into an ETF on the listed ASX or US market, for example. Yeah. So what we're saying is, you know, property, ASX, albeit that you can't recommend it, 
it's probably something that traditionally financial planners probably get their clients to probably maybe look a little bit further into. It brings me to the servicing part, Shawnee, from mm-hmm. a home loan, uh, from a lending perspective. Traditionally, with your lending, you know, it's just done on your, your incomes, what your rent, what your cost of living is yeah. for people when buying in their own name. Mate, can you just uh, elaborate a little bit in terms of when you are sitting with clients, mm-hmm. how does the servicing work? Yeah, sure. So if you've seen your financial planner, you're an accountant and everybody agrees that this is the strategy moving forward, that you are going to purchase a property within your self-managed super fund and you're going to borrow to do so. Then all borrowings, whether it's in your personal name, a company, a trust, or your super fund, from a client perspective, it gets broken down into three key areas. Uh, The first is the purpose. So what are we doing? Why are we doing and who are we doing it for? The second is the security position. So that's the deposit amount you have in comparison to the asset that you're looking to purchase. And out of that comes the loan amount that you need to borrow. The third is the serviceability position. So in your own personal name, you've obviously got your incomes, whether that's generated through like a uh, PAYG employment type arrangement or self-employed. So we take the income, we compare it to your expenses, your household living expenses, your current debts and any proposed debts. And out of that, as long as we get a serviceability pass where we say, yes, it is suitable and you can afford to borrow what you're looking to borrow, then typically it gets approved. Inside your super fund, it really is no different. It looks at what income's coming in, what expenses does the fund currently have, and what's the proposed repayment of the liability that we're looking at establishing. So if we break down the income side of things for super fund, well, what kind of income is the super going to be earning? If you've got your super balance, and let's just use round numbers of $250,000, and most of that is going into the deposit for the purchase, then we can't use the historical income that that investment has created. So that income's off the table. But what we can do is we can include the allocated rent from the property that you're purchasing. Whether that's residential or commercial, there's going to be a rental income. So we take that rental income into consideration. We also look at your SGC, so the superannuation contributions that you've been making over time. If you're self-employed, typically that's at your own discretion with your accountant's advice. If you are PAYG, employed by somebody, that's just increased up to 11%, I believe. So the contributions that your employer is making on your behalf So you've got your rental income, you've got your SGC, that's your income piece. We then look at the expenses. Typically, there is annual reviews, auditing, um, and personal insurance expense within the fund as well. And then we look at, well, how much is this loan going to cost you every single month? Add together, subtract, and if there's a positive number, typically it's going to get approved. And can you look at people's own income in some cases with some lenders? And second question... What type of lenders are out like you name the banks or the mm-hmm. lenders that sure. we use? Sure. So once you do your review of the rental income, the SGC, the expenses and liabilities, if it looks like the super fund can't maintain its own uh, profitability with the debt included, there are some lenders out there that will assess your personal position as well to find out whether the applicants have the ability and the capacity to make additional contributions to their super fund to meet the loan Repayments. Repayments. Yep. So there is that option as well. Yep. Now, typically we try to look at having the super fund do what's considered washing its own face, which means the super fund, there's a stone wall between you and it. It looks after itself. You don't have to make additional contributions above what you already are or what your financial planner has advised you to do. However, 
if we can't get there and this is a, a, an aggressive asset growth strategy, then yes, we can look at your personal position. Um, and, and as long as you have capacity within your personal name to make additional contributions to the fund, we can look at that as well. And is there a different benchmark for people looking at buying a residential property? Or commercial property from a servicing perspective? No, not really. So every bank has its own lending policies, but typically what you find is whether it's a residential property or a commercial property, most banks, the minimum is a 20% deposit plus all of the costs to purchase. So your stamp duties and your government charges and things like that. When it comes to your interest rate, inside super funds, the vast majority of banks do what's called tiered interest rates. So the higher your loan to value ratio, meaning the higher your debt compared to the asset value, the higher your interest rate. The bigger your deposit, the lower your loan, the lower your interest rate, essentially. I'll come back to you, Steve-O, for two secs. If you buy a residential property and you want to do renovations to it, i.e., just for the listeners out there, mm-hmm. knock down, rebuild, could you do that within your super? Generally not, no. Can you buy- uh, uh, Unless you, you had ample cash within the fund. You certainly couldn't finance that. No, you, you can't actually do a construction deal either. It's got to be a single acquirable asset, as they say, which, i.e., someone wanted to buy a new build. If this is where you're going with that question, they couldn't actually complete the purchase until the thing was turnkey, i.e., completely finished, and then it could go through. So I have seen some schemes, for want of a better word, from builders who will fund things along the way, the construction along the way, and then do the deal with the um, SMSF at the end to complete the purchase. But the last one I was involved with, that one which was recently at the Gold Coast, that fund didn't proceed on based on legal advice because um, it left their fund opened to failure of the builder while it was being constructed. So legal advice was not to proceed with that transaction. But So generally... Um, you can't. No. What but, if you had a house that you purchased mm-hmm. and you wanted to do renovations to it? It's probably not the ideal vehicle, uh, the ideal asset to be putting in an SMSF. Sounds like something might work perfectly well outside, but certainly you could do some minor sort of uh, work, work to it, but it would need to come from uh, cash flow within the fund itself. And certainly Minor work, you're talking about kitchen, bathroom? Well, if it needed it, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. As long as it doesn't change the actual substance of the asset. So it's a single quarrelable asset rules and all that stuff. And it was interesting, I had a conversation with a client the other day, just a general advice, okay? Just general conversation with a client. Spoke to them about if they set, if they purchased a property within their SMSF and they sold it after the age of, say, 60 or 65, this is probably the most attractive one for everyone. There's no capital gains, correct? If the fund's in, uh, the member's in pension mode, no. But even in saying that, I mean, the superannuation fund tax rate's 15%. And while you don't get the halving of the capital gains tax rate if you hold the asset for more than 12 months, you do get, it does become 10%. So even if the member wasn't in pension mode, 10% on a sizable capital gain is still pretty advantageous. That's if you sell it before? Before age 60 or after age 60 and the member's not in pension is, mode. So anyone that buys within their SMSF? Yeah, so, so you know your, 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 there, yeah. Yeah, you know your personal um, rule, capital gains, if you hold it for longer than 12 months, your capital gains halved. Yep. Well, with SMSF, it's 15%, but if you hold it for longer than 12 months, well, it's not half, it's not 7.5%, it's 10. That's just the number. A third third discount, virtually. That's that's where the 10 comes Mm. from. But that's unless you do put your member benefits into pension phase. Mm. So move over to pension phase because you've met a condition of release, Mm -hmm. age 60 and retired, over 65, 
et cetera, et cetera. And I know we probably haven't mentioned it. Highly encourage anyone to have a will. Well, the estate planning the, yeah, and the estate exit strategies plan, yeah. around setting up an investment setup are just as important as the initial investment strategy. Shawnee, I didn't quite get just before the banks mm-hmm. typically that look within the SMSF, people that we're seeing a lot of people mm-hmm. buying within the SMSF, we're refinancing plus we're looking at people that are purchasing, that are self-employed, their own premises. Yeah. And that's important to remember. But what are the lenders, mate, that we typically use? Yeah, sure. So they're often the lenders that the average consumer hasn't heard of before. So it's your Liberties, your Latrobes, your Granites, your Think Tanks, places like that are still in the market for self-managed super funds. And they're still very reasonably priced. So One of the clients we're looking after for Seb, we're actually refinancing him away from one of the major banks or one of their affiliates to Granite, and we're saving him approximately 2% per annum on his interest rate, just moving him from a better known lender to one that is still actively in the market. And that's really important. And just add on that, and Steve, on the other great advantages of this refinance arrangement is actually access to an offset account. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's a a fair amount of conversation around offset Mm. accounts they're reviewing it at the moment Mm. because uh, a lot of lenders are saying that there's an advantage from an interest perspective from the ato the tax laws so that's under investigation at the moment and being looked at from a few of the lenders yeah so don't be surprised if maybe they get rid of offset accounts comes off the table maybe yeah maybe look i know we've probably got another five minutes more want to talk now if that's cool guys about Retirement, the average punter in terms of, hey, how much do you think someone's going to need to retire on? Okay. That kind of side of the fence. So, Shawnee, just to wrap up from a lending perspective, yeah, mate. typically what kind of rates are we seeing out there from a purchasing, people that are purchasing, commercial and refinance? Let's start with the purchasing first. Yeah, sure. Well, essentially the purchase and the refinance, it doesn't really matter as far as the interest rate's concerned. What the banks do focus on is the asset class. So whether it's residential or commercial, commercial is always naturally more expensive, usually by about 50 basis points or 0.5 of a percent. Bank to bank differs, but then it's also about the loan amount compared to the asset value. So the lower, it's called LVR, loan to value ratio. The lower your loan to value ratio, the lower your interest rate. So we are seeing six and a halves to seven seven and a halves, all the way up to 8.79% as well. So it really depends on which bank is suitable to that client and how much deposit or equity they have. But it's really not as expensive as you may think in comparison to other investment property loans. So for example, an investment property loan in your own personal name would probably be a fair rate, would be around that 6.19 to 6.25 mark. Inside your super, it's probably 6.75 to 7. Okay. Uh, so it's not too much more expensive, but it is definitely a little bit more expensive. So if someone looks to purchase a property mm-hmm. and wants to purchase a property, signing a contract, typically if you purchase it in your own name, you go 14 days, 30 days settlement. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend someone out there to sign a contract with the finance term and mm-hmm. settlement term? Yeah, sure. Well, first things first, you have to have your bear trust established yep. before you enter the contract. And that's obviously sale. the boys could set that up. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So that's your, your financial planning piece. And yep. this is why you have to have all of your financial support networks working together to ensure that your financial plan is on board with the same strategy that we are as the mortgage brokers. But essentially what you're probably looking at, because it does take a little bit longer because the lenders have to get the trust deeds that are established vetted by their own 
legal firms. So that often takes approximately a week. So we like to say, give us 21 days finance, 60 days settlement as a minimum. Yeah. Um, and that just takes a lot of the stress out of it from the client perspective, because purchasing a property is highly stressful. Doing it inside your superannuation where a lot of our consumers aren't as familiar is added stress to it as well. So just extending the contract out a little bit longer than usual takes a lot of the heat out of the transaction. Boys, I'm close to wrapping up. So thanks for that, Shawnee. That was really, really good, actually. No um, worries, mate. In terms of paperwork-wise, the amount of paperwork that you've got to get for a client, your superannuation statements, you know, you typically the amount of paperwork that you've got to get. So just to wrap up, if you're looking at purchasing a property, 21-day finance and 60-day settlement is typically, but speak to the financial planners first to set up all the correct entities and structure. Sebastian, Steve, just to wrap up and... This is something that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm at the age of 45 now. We're all, not, you know, similar age. I know Shawnee's a Whoa. bit younger. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, at Christmas I he sat with the, the same age as me. No, uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I know. I moisturise differently than you, obviously. You know, I was, at Christmas I was sitting around with a bunch of teachers. My wife's a school teacher, as you know, and we're talking about Riveting. SMSF stuff. Yeah, they wanted to control the situation, funny <laughs> enough. And, you know, I spoke about how it works from a, just yeah. a – from a lending perspective and they're all blown away as to why they're not doing it and Shawnee and I and, and I know that we all work closely together we're all amazed at why people don't know enough about it and yet I would like to know from you both what typically is a couple looking at on average retiring on per year at the age of 65 to 60 and probably the biggest barrier is there is that purchasing a property what what is the myths what do people need to know what do we need to break down and what is the fear so Seb I might start off with yourself what advice can you give to the people that want to know where do you start if you're looking at what age do you sit down and go mate we need to sit down is it 45 is it 40 years of age what do you want to retire on because a lot of people wouldn't even know that right yeah a lot of time it comes down to yeah what we call you know reverse engineering these type of things right is trying to understand in today's dollars what you want retirement to look like. There are some metrics around what an average Australian single or couple may need in retirement to cover a modest or comfortable lifestyle. For a couple, I think, for a comfortable lifestyle, I think it's around about 70-odd thousand. Seventy and a half for a couple. There you go. 50,000 for a single. A year. A year. That's the guidance at the moment that's, from the that's, AF. Yeah, yes, yeah, this yeah. is based on data that's been able to be collected. And I remember one one interview we did and there was several comments that I take notice of but there was one individual one that you'd said which is quite interesting the person said oh look you know maybe 60 grand but then when you think about it you mentioned hey when you go on holiday you spend more right because you're retired you're going to spend mm. more you're on coffees. a permanent holiday yeah. you're on a permanent and, holiday and, and that's what people don't think about and also there's you know, if you're trying at say 65 67 and you are in, still active and in good health you're going to take advantage of of that situation and you're probably going to travel a lot more in those first 10 years of retirement than you are in when you hit your mid-70s or late 70s. So there's a need to cover more income during that period of time than the way may be down the track. But in saying that, we've got things like aged care and, and other things to consider as well as part of someone's really comprehensive retirement plan. Yeah. So, Steve, a couple typically, is it 70 grand a year? Keep in mind, you've got to pay your mortgage off. And what type of super would you need to retire on that? Okay, so the latest figures 
from the Australian Superannuation Financial Association, which is the peak regulatory and um, guidance body. That's the numbers, yeah, 70482 for a couple. That's considered a comfortable retirement, which doesn't generally include, includes a little bit of holiday down the Gold Coast a few weeks a year, but certainly doesn't include an overseas trip, mm. which I'd imagine yeah. pretty much everyone has on their radar, right? So, But if we just take the 70, that's for a comfortable, and we should obviously highlight that most people currently aren't on track even for that. Uh, if you want the 70, you're going to need in excess of a million dollars collectively. So, you know, if you take, talked before about when should you start, well, let's, let's use you for an example. You're 45. If you have a regulated fund, pretty much every fund, industry fund, private fund, they usually generally give you a guidance and they'll say, listen, according to uh, assumption rates, your super should land at this when you're 65, right? Now, if you have a look at that and that number collectively, if you're a single or you're a couple, you add up your super and if you've got a short, if you're going to hit 700,000 and you need a million dollars, well, you've instantly got a $300,000 shortfall. SMSF is probably the only way to bridge that gap, right? So you're sort of like, it is the single best and only strategy to close that gap. But listen, let me get a bit more on those numbers we said before. If you do want to do that overseas trip, well, you need more like $100,000 a year to retire on. And if you want your money to last 20 years, you need around $1.6 million. So you're retiring at 70? You're retiring in the 60s, right? 60s. Now, now just remember- So this is really good stuff, Gil. Statistically, two people today who are 65, there's a high probability, according to the ABS, Australian Bureau of Statistics, that at least one is going to live into their 90s. So we are talking about a 30-year funding period there for that couple. And that's just to take care of their needs. If you want that 100,000 a year, which I'd imagine we all aim for our clients to have- uh, you're needing north of 1.5 million. And that's now in 2023? That, that's correct. So to go back and just to repeat that exercise, get out your latest statement, your superannuation statement, and you'll probably get one for this uh, financial year that you just finished the next month or two. Have a look at what your projected end balance will be. Add that up and uh, pretty quickly. That's one of the thing, key things Sebastian and myself would do instantly. We'd pretty quickly work out what their shortfall is. You can actually do that yourself. And I'd suggest the sooner you do it, the better, because if you wait till you're 55, then you've only got 10 years to work with. SMSF can and work really well, but time is the biggest factor that makes it work. So I know you might be 45 and you just finished paying down a mortgage, hopefully, or you're close to it. Your kids might be getting a bit older, but it's never too early to start looking at at retirement and doing some planning. But we also have to have some realistic views about all this stuff. We have far more pressures around cost of living, housing, in this current cycle of the market. So you've got to look at your whole retirement plan, not just being your super, but everything else you're doing as well. I, I totally agree. But, yeah. You know, it's 2023. Mm. We've just been through, obviously, the inflation with what we've been through. Yeah. It's likely something's going to happen in the next 20 to 25 right. years that will go against. That 1.6 could be 2 million. Oh, for, someone about, for people of our but age. But the message is it's sooner the better. You st- start getting yeah. into a habit of putting a little bit more money into Super 3 Salary Sacrifice or making those personal contributions to try and bridge you know, that gap. Bridge that gap, yeah. Can I just uh, jump in and come back to that 70000 per year income? Is that 
assuming that your clients have paid off their home loan and have it unencumbered. Yeah, correct. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. And then that's a big key part of retirement planning, right. ensuring that that owner-occupied home yeah. loan is- And that paid. number was 62 last year. So you, right. can, yeah. you can see the prices yeah. obviously have increased exactly. the, the inflation. Impact of inflation, that's right. Has, so on, so um, to sit down with you guys, it'd be about an hour, hour and a half. To work through that, right? Just to just to know a little bit more. Say an hour, an hour and a half. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's an initial sort of you know yeah. discovery session where we can start mapping out some throw it out there, some ideas and strategies. So um, it might, if we got three hundred and sixty-five days of the year, you can't spend one and a half, uh, an hour and a half. I mean, if you look at the stat, the percentage of Aussies who own an investment property is only one point nine percent of the people who own any sort of investment property. Anything over that, you've got. Point zero six eight. Who maybe owns six? Mm. Mate, it's it's, an, it's just crazy. In order amount of time that the average Aussie spends on planning their annual vacations is way more than they do on their financial yeah. Yeah. Uh, position. Even and the social media. How being much on social are, media. One hundred percent. Sporting apps. I mean, yeah. How much time do you spend a, on those things? Oh, look, there's a lot of uh, distraction for people, but yet there's so much more information out there. So absolutely, my suggestion would be for anyone that's really keen. You know, from the age, want to know more, sit with you guys for an hour yeah. and a half. Most sure. most advisors offer, you know, 30-minute, no obligation, free consults just to be able to pick up a phone, have a chat to someone that's in the game, that knows what they're talking about, just to even plant some ideas and seeds. Sometimes, you know, relationships take time to, to develop and and that really, that investment into the whole process. But we yeah, can, we can also bit, do it through Zoom now. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. Come exactly. See you, breaking exactly. that part down. Yeah. Exactly. You know, like so you, you're kind of looking at that part. I mean, look, technologies make a lot of things a lot yeah more accessible. For anyone that's listening out there, you can talk to myself and Sean. You can log on to swbrokerage.com.au. We've got a SW Capital arm which looks after your SMSF lending. We can also help people through the journey with purchasing a property. We deal with buyers, agents, financial planners and accountants, or we've got a package that you can go your own DIY. My suggestion would be start the journey, start it today, talk to us, reach out. We'll put you in touch with Steve and Sebastian. If you've got a property that you're looking to uh, refinance within your SMSF, reach out. We can have a conversation with you for five to 10 minutes and uh, see if we can actually add any value to you. But, uh, hey, boys, thank you so much. I actually quite enjoyed that. There's a lot to take out of that, and I'm sure a lot of listeners will get a lot out of that. Mm-hmm. So, Shawnee, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. Sebastian. Thank you, Barry and Steve and Sean, for your time as well today, and hope Cheers. the listeners yeah, gain some additional knowledge and education today. And they can reach out to Wealth Depot to talk to yourself. Yep. Steve, thanks very much, mate, for you to come in. Pleasure, Barry. Super for life if you want to have a chat with Steve. But uh, look, we all work closely together, so please reach out. Thanks very much for listening and uh, look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. You can contact me on barry.wilkinson at swggroup.com.au or if you Google Statewide Wealth Group, Barry Wilkinson that will come up and it'll show you the links on how to get to me it's quite easy jump onto our website if you like in our blog section on Statewide Wealth Group you'll find some wonderful blogs that we've recently put up some tips and tricks and some information from my business partner in relation to the financial planning sector fire us any questions there's an area in within our website that you can ask us any questions that you like and uh, feel free to subscribe to this podcast if you can rate it if you could please that would be really appreciative and uh, feel free to send it amongst any of your friends and family thanks very much yeah.